This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, we see it every day and it feels like we're talking about it all the time these days. And that is misinformation. And a lot of it spread on social media begins with a tweet and that gets shared and then it gets reshared. And then you see misinformation spreading everywhere. And that's why this week it was really interesting to see that the Sri Lankan government took the unique step to shut down social media networks in the aftermath of the Easter Sunday bombings. And they say it was to stop the spread of false news reports. This is a problem that had happened, uh, you know, with the last few terrorist attacks that we've seen, misinformation has always been a huge issue right after the fact. So it's not clear, though, when the shutdown is actually going to end. And one of the side effects of that is that people have been kind of struggling to communicate with one another. And you could argue that this is a time when they need that communication the most just to check in and see if, you know, a loved one is safe or in that area. So when we talk about a ban on social media in cases like this, is it protection against misinformation or is it interference in free speech? It's an interesting topic. We're going to tackle it with the help of our guest, Clint Watts, who's a former FBI agent who studies misinformation for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Clint is also the author of Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Clint, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What did you think about what the Sri Lankan government did this week? I think it's a first case study, really, where we've had a a sharp, uh, acute instance of violence. And they've seen social media as a way to essentially decelerate that, meaning that if you turn social media off, maybe you can slow the pace of reprisals or misinformation that might lead to what I call kind of spiraling, you know, contagion of violence off of it. So uh, what, what we've seen in the third world, when I was writing my book, it was fascinating that I've been focusing a lot on terrorist and uh, Russian disinformation in the U.S. election, but in the third world, um, social media had taken on a much more devastating effect, particularly in places like India and WhatsApp. Yeah. And Sri Lanka uh, is another example. And so I think uh, governments are finally trying to deal with this, that how do they try and control or contain that violence right after an incident? And Sri Lanka's really taken a unique step that people have talked about but never really executed. Right, but there is that downside as well, isn't there, Clint? That idea that, well, that's how we check in with people. That's how we also learn more about these stories. Yeah, there's two parts to it. One, it's the awareness piece. This is the way we all stay in touch with each other nowadays, through social media. This is how a lot of people follow the news. This is how I would know about what was going on in Sri Lanka. And then the second part really is if governments are controlling the tap, I mean, essentially turning on and off social media or controlling it, can they use it for their own purposes or mislead people in terms of the information space, which can also have a devastating effect. We've seen a lot of countries, uh, Myanmar, Cambodia, Philippines, where the government has gone in and really used it to sort of uh, oppress dissidents or anyone that challenges them. And so this is another tool you could use, use an emergency like this, shut off social media so that you can control, you can essentially control the population, which could also be devastating. And really, I think for researchers, this is a first big case study of what's the impact in terms of awareness 
in terms of quelling violence, in terms of quelling misinformation, and, and what really comes out is it is it better or worse for society as a whole? Right, because we've talked, to, obviously, we read a lot about North America, what's happening with Facebook, but you mentioned WhatsApp, and in Asia, it seems like WhatsApp has been the much bigger concern. It has been. It, we have we are uh, a very Western focused, and so we expect to have social media. Uh, we think it's going to be Twitter, Facebook, these sorts of things that we're used to. But what we've seen is the peer-to-peer sharing conspiracies in the less developed parts of the world have led to all sorts of violence based on either misinformation, just false information that people fall for, or disinformation put out by a, a political agenda or by a state. And this has led to people being killed. Uh, in India, they've had uh, spates of rumors uh, fueling alleged kidnappings, which has resulted in just random travelers being murdered by mobs. And in this sort of violent dynamic has really taken hold. So I think in the West, we sort of see it as well. People aren't aware, but maybe we're not aware for, as Westerners of what, what the impact really is of these conspiracies on, uh, on what's happened, how it spreads like a contagion. Right, because, I mean, here we are talking about it, but it, it's been happening in real world, real time in other countries. Do you think this will actually help, though, in Sri Lanka? I don't know. I, I really think it's a test case. I, I'm interested to hear what the social media companies think. I mean, from their perspective, you know, their businesses, they've been doing business in these countries. How has it turned down uh, their business? You know, how, how are they keeping their business running in these countries? Yeah. Um, and are they maybe relieved? To an extent, they've taken a lot of heat. If you remember after the New Zealand attack, they were working very aggressively to take down that content uh, and did fairly well, but they still took an enormous amount of heat from regulators and legislators. And so maybe they're even willing to a certain degree to try and control that information flow when they know it could lead to mass misinformation and then resulting violence. It's a, it's a test case. I, I don't think we've seen it before. And I'm interested in see kind of the, the dueling right. debate about awareness uh, and security uh, that comes from this. I was thinking as well while you were talking there, Clint, about the case of Facebook in uh, Myanmar, right, in, in Burma. Right. They, they faced a lot of criticism for allowing misinformation to spread that resulted in, uh, you know, crimes committed against the Rohingya minority there. Um, and why haven't the companies then spoken up about this? Is it because they know they have been negligent in some of these areas? I think oftentimes they uh, find out about it when we find out about it. The problem that the social media companies have is they've created platforms that have spread around the world faster than they can be policed. And so if you look at Facebook, it appears in you know dozens and dozens of languages, hundreds of countries now. But the whole platform was designed for near instantaneous uploads. It was designed so that anyone could get on and put up content. And by doing that and growing... They never put in the, the controls, really, the people to go through and sift through that information. So in a lot of these countries, Myanmar is a great example. Cambodia and Philippines are two other good ones where they've seen these tools used to suppress minorities or to push out dissidents. They haven't really had people staffed there or even enough people uh, competent in the language to police that content. Now, Facebook in particular has grown that capability pretty aggressively over the last two years, but they have enormous amounts of ground to catch up with. And just the spread of these social media platforms in so many different countries, they, they really don't have the staff uh, to do it, and they don't have maybe the language capabilities to even, even police all that information. Right. So then, I mean, you study misinformation then, Clint. So what makes something spread? Is there any rhyme or reason to it? 
A big part of it is that social media is designed uh, to give you information based on two criteria. One, information that you like. That's the like symbol. And when you when you like information, that plays to your confirmation bias or what you already tend to believe. You then seek out and reamplify and spread information that confirms what you want to believe. The second part uh, that I talk about in my book is uh, implicit bias, which is people like to hear information from people that are in their in-group that look like them and talk like them. If you've uh, read any about the Russian interference in the U.S. election or French election, Germany and Brexit, they created accounts that look like and talk like the audience. And so people tend to believe it then, even if it may turn out to be not true later on. And those two components make it very difficult with social media to unwind things that are emotionally charged that play on political, social, religious issues that people want to consume and come from their in-group. If this works then for Sri Lanka, do you see other countries perhaps thinking that they need to take a more aggressive tone against these social media companies as well? Uh, I think you're already seeing it. Uh, Russia actually has been working to try and pass a law that allows them to essentially turn off the internet and have basically a Russian internal internet, which would police the outside. Uh, China's already uh, taken some rather aggressive steps in terms of controlling the uh, internet and social media and even implementing and integrating it into a social scoring system. And I've even seen it with extremist groups where they take over portions of a country. They've turned off cell towers or turned off the social media feeds into the areas they control. So I think it's already been happening. This is just the first time I can remember where there was a specific incident that that created a policy change that turned off information sources. So I imagine if it's successful at quelling violence, a lot of states would try and use that maybe even for their own advantage and for their own reasons, um, whether they be uh, in the best interest of the public or not. Boy, how things have changed, haven't they? Because, you know, you think back to 2011 and you had all these movements happening in countries around the world and people thought that social media was going to help bring democracy everywhere. That's right. The tool that once was for liberation was for rallying people in hopes of democracy, civil liberties and freedom is now the really the tool of authoritarians that want to suppress challengers uh, internal or country and to influence audiences outside their country. And it's become something that can be harnessed by those that have the right sort of resources, the right initiative, and really unfiltered or unregulated access to these social media companies. And it's a deep challenge for us as a society because we want free speech, we want open dialogue. But at the same point, if we can't figure out who people are, who's really authentic, uh, then if they're just anonymous, it it really creates a glaring opening for anybody to mess with any audience. I feel like that's the social media companies that kind of missed the boat on that because if they're allowing people to, you know, have these accounts where there's no picture, like there's no real name attached to them, then you're allowing that misinformation to spread. So has the boat sailed? Like even if they tried to crack down now, would anybody believe them? Some of their business models are intuitively just challenged by by trying to do that verification. So Twitter, for example, the company is based in part on the number of accounts it has on its platform. So every move they make to verify people slows down account generation or removes a lot of accounts, which would devalue the platform as a whole. Uh, same with Facebook or uh, LinkedIn, um, any of these other platforms, when you look at them, um, they want to create as few barriers as possible to account creation. But by doing that, they're making it more and more vulnerable as a platform for accounts that are going to spread misinformation. So 
So unless they come up with some control, some way to verify authenticity, they're going to struggle with this in terms of creating growth, essentially, on their platforms. So what are you looking for, Clint? Like, I know the Sri Lankan case, it's a test case here. We're waiting to see what happens. But what are you going to be looking for in the next few days here? I'm looking to see when they turn it back on and when people have open access and then what the reaction is, both in terms of the public and and some key researchers. Uh, I think there's a lot of researchers have been looking at the best way to do this. This has been one of the things that's been tossed around, you know, in academic discussions. Well, maybe we turn it off and heightened emotional times, you know, post-violence. And then do we see any sort of uh, after effects? Do people come back to the platforms? Do they move to other information sources? I imagine they'll come back to those social media applications. Um, but then again, does it, does it create a more uh, calm and civil environment, the public square that everyone's always trying to find on social media, or does it just ramp up either sectarian or partisan divides again? Interesting. All right, we'll all be watching. Clint, thank you so much for, to talk, for talking to us about this. Thanks for having me. That is Clint Watts, who is a former FBI agent. He studies misinformation for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also written a book about this. The book is called Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. That sounds like a book for our times.